welcome to this week's episode of Incidicast. In space, no one can hear you scream, but at the very least, you can listen to this podcast episode as we voyage on the Nostronomy to have a look at 1979's Alien. Welcome to this week's episode of Incidicast. You may have noticed that this will be in two parts this week. It's because the episode that we recorded was a little bit too long to be uploaded all at once. So you're going to get part one today, and part two will be on Thursday. That's double the amount of episodes in one week. Can't go wrong with that. Please do check out the links below. You can check out the Instagram and Twitter page, which we greatly appreciate it. And of course, you can always have a look on YouTube as well. Finally, if you're on Spotify, you can click into the episode and rate it yourself out of five on a poll. Please do do that. I think that'll be good fun. It's nice to get some feedback. And of course, it's alien. So it's always worth expressing your opinion. And now it's time to get into 1979's Alien. This week, we'll be talking about a pretty iconic film. Obviously, we have Alien from 1979, directed by the one and only Ridley Scott. This week, I am not alone once again. I am joined by a good friend, Lee. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Absolutely. I don't think I could have covered this film on my own. And luckily, this is something that you suggested. So it's good to have someone enthusiastic about this with me. Yeah, I mean, it's, thank you for having me. I think it's one of these films I could just talk about for hours and hours and hours. So it's nice to just put on like a video, uh, an audio format so that I can just send it out to the masses. Absolutely. So uh, we have quite a stellar cast. And essentially, you know, I think we all know Sigourney Weaver is amazing because Ripley. But obviously we have uh, Tom Skerritt as Dallas, John Hurt as Kane, Veronica Cartwright as Lambert, uh, Harry Dean Stanton as Brett, Ian Holm as Ash, and Yafit Coco as Parker. Um, and also, we have uh, Olaji Badejo. Might have butchered that. Uh, he actually played Alien, actual Alien within the film. And he's uncredited in the first film, and I think that's such a shame. So I'm 100% going to give him credit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He deserves it. Especially when you see him knocking about in those trainers. Oh yeah, I know. And it's crazy as well, because the Alien only has like I think they say four minutes of screen time in the whole film. So is it really that much, that little? Yeah, uh, so he's only, mad. He's only in it for a little bit, and yet he became such a, an iconic legend. I think that's the thing with it, though, isn't it? Like 
you look at films like Jaws, right? Where, and that's the famous example, is because you don't show it so much. It, you, your brain fills in all those gaps and it, those few minutes it's on screen leaves such a, like, it's such a deeper impression within you. Mm-hmm. So to just sort of quickly sum up the storyline for anyone that crazily has never seen Alien in their entire life, uh, it's essentially about a crew of people. Uh, they, they run a commercial ship called uh, this, the Nostronomo. They never kind of specify what the actual commercial aspect is, just know that it's a commercial spaceship. And essentially, they're on the way home, but they get interrupted by a distress call, and they're sort of obligated to see what's going on, and obviously things don't quite go to plan. I think what works so much about the film, when it mm-hmm. starts off, is it, does, it doesn't really explain too much. There's not, it's not like heavy exposition, is it? I think mm-hmm. as soon as you jump into the film, um, you get a little bit of exposition, and you get those slow scenes of like exploring the ship, mm-hmm. but it's never like Prometheus or something like that, where you, where you get all this backstory. You just kind of just get into it, and that's. I think that's kind of the appeal of the opening. I think that kind of builds up the atmosphere so much more because you just kind of get going with it, isn't it? You you kind of build it in your head and you kind of go with it. Absolutely, and you know one thing about this film is it's very very dark, like physically dark. Mm. And it's also tonally very dark as well. And you sort of see that in the intro, really. This sort of slow, dark transition throughout the whole ship. You know, and you really get to sort of see the, the type of technology they have. But it's just very dreary and it's very grim. And it helps with the atmosphere, I think, you know? Yeah, the opening shot. So you've got the, you've got it, the alien logo comes up slowly, which is fantastic. And then you see the Nostromo slowly coming through space, and mm. as I was watching it, I kind of, kind of thought it's it's strange. It's almost like an oxymoron. Like the a, the ship is surrounded by infinite space, but it's so like claustrophobic and isolating. It really sort of sells the idea that they're on their own, and it's quite like intense, I think, or quite um, mm. overpowering. And then, and I think what really sort of lends itself and we'll talk about it more when we sort of start talking about the characters but the ship itself isn't like something out of 2001 or it's not Mm. something out of um star trek it is this very much working class commercial vehicle is it's a truck of spaceships isn't it really yeah i think um if one thing that alien succeeds very very well is you kind of have to give the ship its own personality and i think a lot of other films try to do this in a very similar way as well. Where I'm trying to think of like a really good example. I guess like kind of like The Shining in a way, where it's kind of like mm. they wanted to give the the hotel itself its own personality, but otherwise it just kind of it's just a random hotel, <laughs> you know. And like in this, it would yeah. be a random ship, but the, the ship is so filled with character. It's it's kind of weird because so when I was younger, I um it never really was into sci-fi. So it was always kind of a thing where like. My mum liked comedies, my dad liked sci-fi, and I liked horror. And any time I'd see sci-fi, I'd be like, okay, aliens again. And it was only when I bought, like, the Blu-ray version of this, and I saw, like, the remastered footage, and just, I really appreciated just so much detail that's in mm. the props and, you know, sort of just the walls and just a million different lights and buttons that they would never use in the film, but they're there anyway, and it all has intent. 
it's just crazy the amount of work in it, but it makes it feel alive and feel like a real ship. A hundred percent. I think, I think I, I believe this was how they pitched it originally. Is the film is really a haunted house film, right? It's mm. you're trapped in this location with this creature, this spectre, this almost supernatural creature that's hunting the characters through. And it's one of these things where it's such an like an iconic location. And it was um all of the human aspect of the film was designed by um two guys named Ron Cobb and Chris Foss. And mm-hmm. I think that and I think they did such a great job. Like it's truly like special, I think. For such like a utilitarian sort of design. Mm-hmm. It's I find very iconic. You when you see an alien spacesuit it's, you can look at it and you go, that's Alien. Well, that's from the Alien franchise, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's very matter-of-fact. It kind of reminds me of um, sort of the whole thing about Star Wars and Star Trek. And obviously Star Wars is a bit of an influence in this film, as you can tell. Um, mm. And, it, it, you know, what makes those two franchises really distinct is the aesthetic of what the ships look like and, and sort of what the world looks like. You know, Star Wars is very, like, um, dystopian. And Star Trek feels very utopian. And mm. Alien just feels very unclean. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. um, it's just very functional. It kind of reminds me in many ways. I guess a good comparison would be like The Matrix. That kind of really just mechanical feeling about everything. Yeah. It's, it's all very cold and just blatant. You know, it's like, this is a ship. This is where the food is. This is whatever. One of the things you touched on, which I think is probably a really good segue into some of the plot elements, because I think it's quite integral. There's a lot of discussion in this film, essentially about workers' rights, the mm. deliberation of pay, but what boundaries some people's personal responsibility starts and stops based on things that they want to do or not. You know, it's kind of like I'm mm. not, I'm not contracted to do this, or this is somebody else's decision, not mine. And it's kind of interesting in these scenarios because that makes it very relatable even today. I think a lot of people experience this in loads of different workplaces. And also considering that there's no sort of what I would say there's nothing that dates the film, right? Mm. Usually would be something like CGI, often enough. Um it, it makes it like a very timeless feel that it could just last yeah. forever. And the message stays the same. Which is also kind of bleak because it means like <laughs> we're no different than we was in the seventies. <laughs> so, what's your kind of thought process on sort of this sort of dynamic? I think the film sort of brings up a lot, and I don't want to do anything unless I'm going to get more pay. Do you know what I mean? I want bonuses and that type of stuff. I think it. I. It's one of these things. I think when you. I think on its own. I think Alien is a fantastic film, but it's these themes that are like embedded throughout the film, so that makes rewatch is so much more rewarding so with the especially with the dynamic between parker and brett they're trying to get those extra shares for the for their work even though they're not being paid the same as say lambert or ripley or dallas Hmm. and i think it really reflects it in the environment as well because you look at dallas who's obviously the head of the ship Mm -hmm. he's got those clean white rooms with especially with mother and but then you go down into the more sort of bowels of the ship with Parker and Brett and it is so disgusting and like wet and just dripping 
I think it does actually have quite a strong commentary on workers' rights and and I'd say capitalism as well, which I do think is mm. sort of touched on as well in the sequel Aliens. Um, but I do think this is a lot more. I think it's more subtle in this film, but I think it is mm. a stronger um, threat throughout. I think in this, it's kind of like it's a theme as opposed to like you know the integral part of the story. Thing. Mm. I do think it's a very interesting aspect of the film just because it's something that separates it, I think, from a lot of other sort of franchises or films that are kind of set in space. Because usually what happens is you have a sort of dystopian ship, but also like a kind of dystopian way of doing things. Where if you take like Star Trek, for example, um, everything feels very like robotic. And even people feel very robotic. It's like everyone has a place and they just do the job. People in Alien feel really relatable, and it's because mm. there's a lot of hierarchy of authority, and the playing about with this and choosing when to break rules and when to abide by rules. You know, one minute you could be like, "We need to do this because this is in the rule book," and then in the next minute they're just literally doing the exact opposite because they want to. It's very relatable <laughs> to a lot of like ways that real life, like real life, works, and I think it really separates it from a lot of with the space things it kind of makes it unique yeah i'd agree with that and i think and i think you could even tell that it sort of has its a strong message and it's very relatable and and it continues through because you look at the entire franchise and wayland yutani is a consistent and people know that name and that's mm. quite a, you know what i mean it's not it's quite a strange thing to be pop culture the name of a company within a science fiction movie but mm. you can wear it well i've got a t-shirt with wayland yutani on it and people recognize it i think it increases and gets more consistent throughout the franchise mm. but i think it does really sort of cement itself within the first film oh yeah in a sense it's a bit like skynet and that's kind of that's mm. when that's when you know i think you've made it <laughs> as a filmmaker when like someone can constantly reference something in one of your films in, in everyday life, you know, that's I think that's when you've struck gold. Yeah, sorry, just to carry on with that yeah. point you were saying there, I think you really look at it and you think none of without that hard capitalist greed from Wayland Yutani, none of this film would happen, right? Mm -hmm. The they wouldn't have even found the ship. Ash wouldn't have brought Kane on board with the parasite. Mm -hmm. None of that would have happened without that strong capitalist greed to make money from death oh yeah absolutely and i think it's you know one of the things i kind of wrote about sort of later on in the film when obviously you get you know the bigger realization that a lot of this was kind of planned <laughs> which is that you know you get this sort of really daunting feeling really that sometimes like companies that you work for they can have like a higher plan with what to do with you and you're just not like a pawn within that and you know, again, I think it plays with the authority thing, right? There's a lot of, like, need-to-know basis. And mm. one, that makes it very relatable to people even today. But two, it just also makes it terrifying because it, it makes you feel very hopeless if you're in that scenario. Like, so much is out of your control and you were kind of set up as, like, lambs to the slaughter, essentially, without even knowing about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even in the... um if you ever played the video game Alien Isolation, I'm mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, 
the Alien DLC was called Crew Extendable, I think. So it kind mm-hmm. of falls into that as well. Amazing. So I think we should get like into sort of some of the more like intricate details of the film now. So mm-hmm. essentially, we're introduced to the crew. We know that they get woken up because um, there's uh, sort of a message for help. And this is where they kind of discover that it's actually a part of the contract, the working contract, that they have to see what's going on. Right, otherwise, you know, they don't get any pay. And another flex of this kind of corporate power. But as they arrive to this uh, sort of pretty horrendous planet, you know, it's very harsh, very primordial, they said. Um, we get a very interesting landscape with a lot of really detailed architecture. And obviously, films back then, they kind of relied a lot on map paintings as opposed to like CGI and stuff. Same way that Star Wars did. There's a kind of lost flavor about that kind of set design you know where it's like someone could just paint out something that just doesn't exist but feels so real i think i think this whole scene is i think to be fair i think the whole opening 30 minutes leading up to this is so well done it's Mm. the slowest 30 minutes of the film i'll be honest but i think within those 30 minutes it fully establishes the themes of the films and the character dynamics and the social dynamics between the characters as well. Mm-hmm. And when I think you do get to the planet, there's always this sort of temptation with science fiction to have it be this beautiful planet or like this lush jungle and just to have it just be this really harsh atmosphere just cements this idea that they're just going into hell. Mm. They're going into this new, well, well, they are going into a new world, but a new sort of space, a new void. And I think that that shot with all the wind going and the the tiny astronauts walking along the ground with that with the giant horseshoe ship is absolutely one of the best shots in cinema history. One hundred percent. So much so. Uh, obviously, it gets called back to quite a lot. I think when, even when you look at like the Prometheus films and stuff, it kind of reminds me of something I was talking about in a previous episode, actually, which is sometimes like when sequels or spin-offs, you know, they kind of don't have a lot of strong enough messages themselves. They just throw in a lot of like nostalgia from like the first film. And mm. Prometheus kind of did this as well. It's like, this is the first ship with the first alien. And that felt very clinical. But when you first see the ship in the original Alien, it is so like dusty and just dated and just aged. It's very weathered. I mean, it's on a weathered planet. Like you would expect it to be weathered at this point. And you know, we get to introduce this sort of crazy character bodysuit thing with what looks like a huge cannon, which becomes quite an, an iconic thing, I think, from the film. We get a bit of foreshadowing here because we see a, a sort of hole. <laughs> in the middle of it. <laughs> I think this whole scene, especially with the space jockey, is so well done. I it's and I know it's somewhat of a cliche way to describe stuff like this, but it really is Lovecraftian because mm. it's it's terrifying. You go through as they enter this ship, you they're all quite small. It's Mm. They're dwarfed by the set. 
and you're walking through this completely and utterly alien environment and it is all haunting it's obviously done by hr giger and it's just so upsetting it is really a nightmare personified and then what i think is great about this film is you have this the space jockey who's probably what 12 foot tall 13 foot tall this giant creature with this broken open chest and what looks to be a giant trunk and it's never touched on again it's simply thrown away and it just leaves you waiting and thinking what was that and it plants it subconsciously like what could kill that and what's going to kill them and i kind of noticed as well sort of through this whole segment the music is so good here it's like it always has the music in this film especially through most of the beginning it always has this sense of like curiousness you know it's this kind of like twinkling mystery kind of music it's like oh what is this and obviously (laughs) it just turns out to be something pretty horrific and they probably wish they never found it and it's kind of weird because it's found in such a weird way i think uh kane sort of just has a bit of a fall it's kind of a random fall really i don't quite know what triggered it he just sort of went oh (laughs) and just fell and then he sees the eggs for the first time and one thing I knew about this, which is just so true. I mean, again, because there's no like CGI really in this film, except from like very minimal special effects, but not like CGI in terms of like a generated image. It's just how much detail you have to put into the prosthetics and to the set pieces, because this is all you have really to sell this to the audience is this is a real thing. And if it doesn't look real or if it looks, you know, half arse. People aren't really going to feel anything about it. But every single detail of these eggs is so specifically crafted to kind of tell you about it. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's thicker here and it's it's thinner here and you can see through it here. It's a little bit transparent. And then inside it's like, this bit's wet. This bit's like, you know what I mean? It's so specific with detail and it's, it's so good. I, I miss like how special effects have this much attention to detail. I think it, I think, you are 100% correct. I think one of the really strong aspects of this film is that every aspect of this creature, the, the xenomorph, the the egg, the face hugger, is so meticulously thought out. Hmm. None of it feels like a horror movie gotcha. Like Everything feels genuine and true to what this creature would evolve into. And I think especially when Kane's walking along that walkway with all those thousands of eggs beside him. I can imagine that a lot of people, when leaving the theatre, it leaves you with this kind of feeling of, if that's what one alien could do, what are they all going to do? And obviously we see that in the sequel, but imagine when you're first watching it. And I think one of the other things, as I was re-watching it, one good way to re-watch it is to put yourself in a headspace of, Imagine you're watching this for the first time in 1979. Science fiction you'd have, what, 2001, The Lost in Space, Star Wars a couple of years before. This was all so brand new, so unexpected, so crazy and just Hmm. absolutely mind-blowing. No wonder people were absolutely terrified of this film. Yeah, I think it's a big testimony to this film as well because I think a lot of the 70s was quite dominated by sci-fi films. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm 
you know, whether it's sort of like the whole Roswell scenario and, and other things like that and other sort of uh, people's fears at the time. But people are obsessed with like alien films and people impersonating humans and all that kind of craziness. And for a film like this to kind of cut through all of that sort of thickness, the thickness of films, it is really a testament to how much detail and, and how well people can get invested into these people and these characters. Because otherwise, you know, there's nothing stopping Alien from just being compared to another Alien film that came out that year. But Ripley Scott, it's just, it's just got something magic. He really does. So, as we know, Kane sort of gets a bit of a hook by some creepy Alien. And they have to drag his body back, which I think is never a good sign. I think if we have to, like, drag someone back, <laughs> it's usually, like, not a very good scenario. And yeah, if he's got a if he's got a parasite on his face and you have to drag him back, just leave him there, mate. So don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. And you know we have this really interesting again power dynamic, where essentially Ripley wants to keep them contained for at least twenty four hours, but obviously there's a bit of a dispute on whether that should happen. Ash sort of goes out of his way to just open the ship anyway because you know later he sort of says, "Well, that was the order given," and Ripley kind of. Has a really good conversation with him in the Med Bay after they sort of, you know, get Kane in and, and sort of realize what's going on. That essentially, uh, she was the person in control. She was in command when the other two officers were not on the ship. And again, it's a struggle of power play and, and who should be responsible for what decisions. That I think is really cool. And considering when you're talking about an alien that potentially we should be quarantining because they could have all types of diseases, even. That in itself is kind of scary because making judgment calls in that scenario of like, do you let like your co-workers out of a room or not? <laughs> yeah, and I think what this few scenes does is it really starts to plant the seeds that Ash is not trustworthy. Because mm. you, firstly, you have that scene where Ripley starts to think that it's actually a warning message, not a SOS. Absolutely. And Ash quickly shuts her down just like, Oh, don't bother! Don't bother telling them. What are you going to do? And yeah. when she questions him, he's just more kind of, "Oh, well, they're already there. Just let them find out." And yeah. then there, you can see there's like a an excitement to him. The moment he can, there's they find out that there's a parasite attached to Kane's face, mm. and him letting um, them back in the ship is obviously later revealed to be something else or a nefarious reason. But I do think it is quite an interesting sort of dynamic between him and Ripley, which obviously does pay off quite violently later on in the film. I think what isn't quite interesting about the start of the film as well is that everyone knows that Ripley is the queen of the alien franchise, queen of sci-fi even. Mm -hmm. But on your first watch, if you were to go into this completely blind without watching it and with the kind of catalogue of films that had come before prior everyone would have thought that Tom Skerritt's Dallas was the lead character not Ripley she doesn't really have as strong of a presence in the opening half of the film as she does in the latter half and it's really in these scenes you really start seeing Ripley show her more authoritative if that's the correct word leadership side Mm -hmm. and starts to make you take note of the character. 
yeah, I think what Ripley does is she kind of play, she plays like a very sort of uh, standoffish character. You know, and we don't necessarily warm to her straight away. And I think this is kind of like a, an intentional thing with Ridley, because I feel like one thing that uh, Ridley Scott did very well is he never really gives us like a, a straight up point of view character. He kind of gives everyone a decent amount of screen time away from everybody else so that we get to know people more personally and individually, as opposed to saying, no, this is our sort of POV character and everyone else are just sidelines. And in that sense, Ripley feels like she sort of breaks through sort of what's remaining. And in many ways, it's partially not her fault because she's the only one who survives. And, you know, it could have easily been her in, in any other scenario that could end up dead. And we could have been following someone completely different for the rest of the film. And I think it's kind of, it's cool. It's a good dynamic because it sort of hits you with a bit of a surprise instead of being very predictable about who the main character is. Yeah, it works very well because obviously without jumping too too far ahead into spoiler territory, the moment Dallas gets killed off, Mm -hmm. it does create this unease of tension. Uh, Anyone is up for death. Mm. No one is safe. The only person who we all know is safe is the cat, because they're not going to kill off the cat. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but I, it does create that unease. And I think what is really good, I think, when watching this back is I recently watched that new Resident Evil movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was okay, but every single character just had one personality trait, which was just mm-hmm. con- repeated throughout the film, because there was just not enough well, the script wasn't good enough to flesh them out or give them their own characteristics beside mm-hmm. one character trait. Whereas with this one, with whereas with Alien, I feel that I could tell you who Parker and Brett was. I could tell you their dynamic. I could tell you their dynamic with Ripley. I could tell you their dynamic with Ash. It's all these small little things. It's like, there's one scene that I think is really good. And it just it's just one line of dialogue. And I think it fleshes out these characters so much there's a scene when Ash is sat, sat at the table and they're all discussing, I think, what to do with Kane, I believe. Hmm. Might have been before that. And um, Parker comes over and he just says to Ash, you're in my seat. And Ash just immediately gets up and moves. And that says so hmm. much about their, these characters and how they all work together and their social dynamic. And I think that really builds this small cast into feeling a lot more than what a script can do normally. Yeah, for sure. And I think kind of an interesting point you raised because I think that kind of helps really with, you know, helping Ripley be a main character. I think when obviously Dallas dies, not only does that create sort of a a vacuum in terms of who we expect the lead role to be, but I think it just kind of leaves a vacuum of authority really. And now it's about like who's gonna step in those shoes and take control of the situation. Which Ripley was dying to, I think, from the get-go, because she just really disagreed with every decision that was being made, essentially. And obviously one of the big decisions that was made was letting Kane in and letting him into the medbay. And the whole medbay scene, I think, is obviously extremely iconic in the sense that we finally get to see what, obviously, this alien looks like, at least the facehugger side of it. And the facehugger is sort of iconic at this point i mean like they sell like teddies it's like sit on your face now <laughs> like <laughs> yeah like it's at that level 
And we get this really amazing sequence where any time that they try to interfere with it, it just sort of grips tighter in his throat. And it it's a creature that, like, it's very all or nothing for survival. It's like, either I'm going to give this dude an egg, or he's going to die. And I will probably die with it. I don't know. And it's super creepy. And the design of it is super creepy. And everything is very wet in this film. Very wet. Very slimy. And it just kind of makes it feel really, like, gross to look at. Yeah. I think I think we'll talk about it more when we get to the actual xenomorph. But I think the actual design of the face hugger is so good. It's mm-hmm. It's so simple as well. And I know that sounds such an easy form of praise, but parasites, you want a clean parasite, don't you? You want something, mm. you don't want something over-designed, you want something, like you said, you can put on a teddy, you can make into a teddy bear. Yeah. Um, which is such a weird thing to say for a horror franchise, but I mean, I guess you can get Jason Voorhees teddy bears, can't you? Um, yeah. But I think that whole scene, and then when it's sort of, you know, once it's died, and it's on its back and it's curled up. Everything inside of it looks so realistic and fleshy, and mm. like you've just cut open like the skin of an animal, and you've seen like all of its insides. Oh, it's great. Love it. Yeah, it's super gross. And I think the kind of one thing I've said in sort of previous reviews about different films is, you know, whenever you're creating something that you know doesn't exist, and you kind of want to make it believable. The best thing to do is kind of keep it simple. And the reason why is because it has to be readable to an audience, right? And I think it just kind of goes back to like more kind of like psychological things that just in life where essentially like it's all about silhouettes. If something has a very iconic silhouette, it's very readable and people relate to it instantly. And it doesn't matter like where you are, they'll see like a sil they could see a black and white silhouette of a face hugger and they know exactly what it is. And that's that's what design needs to be. And there's something creepily uncanny about the facehuggers just because obviously they look like human fingers, which is just gross. And it also kind of reminds me of like a, a scorpion, which, you know, you don't want to play about with those. <laughs> yeah, when you do get to see the inside of them, it's super gross. I think I read earlier as well that like they partially did it using like oysters and shellfish, that type of stuff, you know? Um, I can see that now you mention it. Yeah, and they, they put it all inside it, and it looks really gooey and gross. <laughs> <laughs> Bad smell, great. Well, speaking of bad smells, this kind of leads on to, I guess, sort of the next major development in the plot, which is essentially when Kane wakes up. And it, it's so bizarre because, like, I kind of wrote this in the news, which is we started off with the sequence of Ripley sort of saying to people, like, we should all be in quarantine right now. And then the second Kane wakes up, it's just like, do you want some food? <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just all gone. Don't have to worry about it anymore. Everything's I mean, fine. <laughs> with everything going on in the world at the moment, it does, it does, that reaction does feel somewhat realistic to what normal people do, doesn't it? Literally. It, it's so, <laughs> it's so uncanny now. And then you get the situation where like, the people sat around, they're eating dinner, and it feels so, so wrong. Like, something is building up because it just, it feels like one of those scenarios that's just too good to be true. And as we know, it is. 
and we get um what essentially is one our first introduction to the actual xenomorph but obviously second perhaps i don't know one of the most iconic things in sci-fi history sort of incredible uh alien just obviously bursts from his body and covers everybody in blood so well do you remember your first reaction of that no i i see i feel like um by the time i actually saw the first alien it was so ingrained into pop culture that it yeah it was somewhat of an expected yeah thing for me i mean my dad is an absolute alien fiend he loves all of these all of the films and like and i had the i had the video games you know what i mean that sort of thing mm. but i think it once again it's putting yourself in that mind frame from 1977 uh 1979 apologies um and it's it you just can't i can't no one would have expected that, would you? Oh no! It's there's no way to anticipate it. It's such a brilliant thing, and and obviously this is quite a well known fact. But the reactions are real in the scene. Um, Ridley Scott didn't tell any of the actors that the blood was going to come out and mm. pop out. So when you see all those characters shouting and screaming in reaction that is their real reactions because they thought during filming they were told he was just going to wriggle around a bit and they were going to film it again later on but what i do think works as well is that it's really quite distressing seeing kane freak out on that table yeah if you know it's it's really aggressive it's almost like a it he's having like this really aggressive fit and you get this really like tense moment of like what's happening, what's that next thing gonna be? And then obviously it bursts out of the chest, which is obviously absolutely horrible way to die, by the way. And sort of oh, break yeah. through your ribcage from the inside. But yeah, it is completely iconic. I mean, it was even in Shrek too, so you know it's hit the mark there. <laughs> You're not wrong. And obviously the reason why I said uh, kind of the reference of bad smells is because they used real animal blood, apparently. And did they? Apparently it stank really bad on set. And also the organs they used in him were real also. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to be covered with that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think Kane's sort of... I guess Kane's struggle... I mean, it is very difficult to watch. And I'll give him credit, which is... It, it's very hard to potentially portray something that you've never experienced. When I sort of first watched Aliens sort of the first few times, like I kind of really, I never really liked that scene partially because of him, because I always felt like it felt really fake. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like the screams. But I mean, I think it was just me kind of being a little bit un- unfavorable. I, I mean, how do you portray like something bursting from your chest? Um, mm. I always have to think about this when I watch sort of older films, which is we've kind of been in a bit of a a world of luxury these days, where like we we get showered with a lot of film, with a lot of really convincing CGI, a lot of really convincing like uh, prosthetics and stuff, which are things that have been like refined over decades, and a lot of these films were breaking new grounds with this type of stuff, 
and it was the first time that you would ever have seen stuff like this in a film. And now looking at things, I, I, I give these films a lot more respect for essentially what they were doing. You know, I don't get to look at it with this rose-tinted glasses of like, oh, well, that looks fake. <laughs> because back then, there was nothing to compare that to. That would have been the first time you would have ever seen something like that. Uh, especially because, like, Alien, I guess, was a little bit more commercial. As opposed to, like, you know, I guess horror films were probably the ones trying to pioneer this the most. But a lot of them were very, like, niche films. And a lot of the time, they were getting banned in cinema. So you'd never be able to actually go watch them. So to have these sort of prosthetics appear in a more mainstream film and, and hit the theatres, like, that's going to shit people up. It really well, you know. Mm, yeah, because I think you know more about horror films than I do. But it would have been, I think, and you've got to sort of think that by this point in cinematic history, right? Gore wasn't as welcome as it is today because mm. you have, and I think it was around this time, right, with Halloween and those sort of films that were bringing in the slasher genre slowly. And with the slasher genres really when sort of gore became a more sort of mainstream mm. point in films. Um, but I guess at this point, there wasn't as much... You know what I mean? That, that, that little bit of blood goes a long way. Oh yeah, it does. Especially when you compare it even just to sci-fi films in the 70s. A lot of it, you know, didn't really sort of steer into the gory element or the horror element, really. I mean, you had like aspects of horror. I mean, you're talking like Invaders of the Body Snatchers, for example. To have a world replaced by aliens, pretty terrifying. But was the blood and gore and stuff? Not really. Definitely didn't kind of lean into that. But this is just kind of all out quite brutal in that sense. And like I said, I think this is what helped Alien cut through the mold a little bit. Um, So just kind of pushing on a little bit now through some of the sort of other plot points, because obviously there's quite a bit to go through with this film, really. So much happened. So after this whole sort of scenario with with Kane, uh, kind of like we were saying earlier, this is, I think, where Ash becomes more suspicious, 100%. So this conversation with Ripley really kind of doesn't sit right. And, you know, it kind of makes it feel like he was downplaying potentially how serious it is. And potentially that something bad could happen. And even at this point, you know, all the way up to sort of the, the burst, bursting of the chest, he was always kind of looking at it like a lab rat, sort of watching it do its thing. And even as it escapes, he was still doing what he could to protect the alien, which, you know, we, we later find out that's because that's his mission, which we didn't previously know. But it's a really interesting turnaround for his character because he was very much like a weird guy. Like, I really love Ian Holm as an actor, especially from his work in the Lord of the Rings films. I think he's really good in this film. He plays that perfect type of weirdo where he feels realistic, like somebody you could work with, but he is, there's just something off about him, um, something weird, like something not quite right. And when you see him in these sort of scenes, you get the impression that he's like suppressing this like excitement almost. This mm-hmm. 
he's very like happy maybe excited is the wrong word but he's very happy interested and like and almost removed from the situation as if you were doing a science experiment at home in the safety if that makes sense for sure i think it's because like for him he knows that he's secured whatever asset he was set out to be there so he's probably very curious to see what it does in the real world but obviously this doesn't go well for the crew and we get this pretty crazy series uh, series of events where essentially he sort of turns on Ripley and they have a bit of a scuffle and this is where we kind of realise isn't anything because I mean they hit his head off which is brutal but obviously there's no blood it's like this horrible gross milk <laughs> <laughs> so vile and he spends like the next five ten minutes just spewing out milk and I just feel sick looking at it man again just the amazing amount of prosthetics and special effects that goes into this just all the stringiness of it it's just so gross i think what i i i've always found i genuinely always found that scene probably one of the most upsetting bits of alien it's actually watching it now is not that bad but the thought of having a newspaper or a, it's actually a porno mag or something like that isn't it <laughs> yeah. shoved down your throat is so horrible oh it's such a horrible way to die i think yeah and when they just because they just hit him don't they yeah. or Parker comes in doesn't he and he hits him and he has that almost fit as he's going about and you don't really know what's happening mm. and then they kind of beat him down and then they have that very much one of my favourite bits as well I love this bit um, where you have the very much clear fake prop head and then they <laughs> kind of line it up perfectly and yeah. then it's Ian Holm again it's, it's um, really well done actually I think it's fantastic so this kind of pushes into sort of the next scene, which is essentially, I guess, when we first get to see the Xenomorph for the first time, and it doesn't look like a little tiny worm anymore. It's changed very quickly. And it's a, such a good scene because it's so it's silent and so, like, it's so slow. It gives it a lot of time to breathe and to build up. Films should always do this. Just give moments like this time to breathe and let the audience feel that kind of apprehension that something's going to happen. So he's sort of obviously looking for Jonesy, the cat. Uh, this is Brett at this point. And he's, he's sort of, I guess, like in this bit of like a spare shuffle room. I can't remember what it was specifically. And it's just dripping water everywhere. He spends a lot of time just getting wet. Again. <laughs> like just letting all this water drop in his face. And we then get sort of this subtle reveal of the Xenomorph. And it's so great because it's so quiet. And it feels like the perfect predator. It kind of reminds you of like how tigers or lions will like creep up behind something and like don't make any sound, you know, until it gets really, really close. It makes perfect sense for the design and the actual in-universe creature, right? Because an actual, like as you were saying just then, an actual predator wouldn't scream or like shout or warn the prey it would it would get as close and ready for the kill as it possibly can but yeah i agree i think this is once again i mean i'm going to be saying this consistently throughout this podcast but i think it is a fantastic scene i think i one of my favorite bits is brett picking up the skin and uh, like the shed skin which is obviously quite 
nerve-wracking as well as an audience member because you're like what's it grown into and it does sort of slightly conjure images or like connections to creatures like snakes and stuff which obviously people don't actually particularly like that much although i think they're all right um but the xenomorph reveal is so good and Mm. it's just such a impeccable design like there Mm. there is not one single thing i would change on the xenomorph and i'll be honest i don't think they've ever any of the films have been able to be as good as the original i've actually got a quote here from hr geiger Mm. i always wanted my alien to be a very beautiful thing something aesthetic a monster isn't just something disgusting it can have a kind of beauty and i do really agree with him um Mm. obviously i'm not one of those people online who are trying to like get up and cozy with the alien if you know what i mean (laughs) but i think it is horrific and horrifying but in an incredibly beautiful way it feel everything about it feels so alien and horrible and just so inhuman Mm. but it does feel like a real creature which i think is an incredible design feat I think for me, like, it kind of ties into two things. So one, like I said earlier, which is a lot of designs have to have a really clear silhouette. Alien, I feel like the Xenomorph has a very clear silhouette as much as the face hooker does. If you saw, like, a a black and white image with no detailing, you would know from the shape of the head and the tail and stuff that that's a Xenomorph. And that makes it very readable. Readable is really important, I think, because compare this to, like, if you had, like, a blob monster, and compare that to like a different type of blood monster, from, like a blood monster from a different film. I mean, they look the same. And realistically, like if you didn't have the bandages, what is the difference between a mummy and a zombie? <laughs> if you just look at that as like a black and white image, it's exactly the same. And that is a really important part. And I think the second important part is the fact that there's got to be some parts of it that feel somewhat relatable to things that we know in real life. So. Having teeth is quite a big one, but also just the fact that it's got like two legs and two arms. It's got fingers, you know, and a sort of like a thumb. That's going to feel something that's very relatable to look at so that we can envision that being a real thing. Whereas like you take something that doesn't exist and it's very hard to see that in the same kind of light. It needs these aspects that just feel real. And Obviously, we get to see how the xenomorph kills. Quite a unique thing. It's got a mouth within a mouth. You never have enough mouths, I guess. No, definitely not. Thank you all for listening so far. I hope you enjoyed part one. I think we had a good little discussion here about Alien and sort of some of the starting build-up that the film has. And of course... We're going to get into that finale in part two, so please do check that out on Thursday. That would mean so much to me. In the meantime, like I said earlier, uh, please do check out the links below. Please check out the socials. We'll see you in the next episode.